They always said Lincoln. Nobody got treated worse than Lincoln. I believe I am treated worse. So this is probably a good time for me to not make a joke about that comment. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 in Ridgecrest and China Lake, California. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV. In Gallup, New Mexico, on KNIZ, one of the worst hotspots, frankly, in the entire country when it comes to coronavirus right now. In Concord, New Hampshire, on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle, on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF, amongst other fine affiliates. Terrestrial and other otherwise, we also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets, even during pandemics, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deep Programmed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another very busy edition of the Bradcast, your stay-at-home radio companion. Uh, Good to be here with you today. Uh, If you were wondering if the poll that we reported on last Thursday's Bradcast, finding presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden leading Donald Trump in Texas... In Texas. Desi, your home state of Texas. I know. You're dubious? I am. Let's say I am uh, well, hopeful. Hopeful okay. that that poll might actually Well, count. we'll we'll see. Last uh, week we reported uh, that uh, uh, Biden was leading Trump in Texas by one point, which is, you know, within the margin of error. So essentially tied. Uh, and some people thought this must be an outlier. It's an impossible number for deep red Texas. Well, it appears it was not an outlier poll, that one we reported last week. Donald Trump and Joe Biden are in a dead heat in the race for Texas, according to a new Dallas Morning News University of Texas poll signaling that the Lone Star State is evolving into a presidential background this year. The new survey released on Sunday finds that uh, Trump and Biden are backed by 43 percent of poll respondents each, with 5 percent opting for other candidates and only 9% who are undecided. Trump's overall approval rating in Texas was 45%. 
and yet he can only get 43 percent of the uh, respondents to say they will vote for him again this November. A February survey uh, had Trump with uh, with the same uh, outfit, had Trump with a one point lead over Joe Biden with 11 choosing neither. So. The momentum, at least a tiny, tiny bit of momentum there, is a tiny in bit any of event. Joe-mentum. Joe-mentum. In Texas. There you go. <laughs> the, uh, the new poll suggests that with a significant investment from Biden and National Democrats, Texas could become a swing state where Trump has to pour in resources in order to defend, according to the Dallas Morning News. A Democrat has not won the state has not won a statewide race period in Texas since 1994. And it has been uh, does any idea how long ago uh, Texas voted for a Democrat for president? Um, actually, I was going to say probably 98, Bill Clinton, but I could be wrong about that. You are definitely wrong about okay. that. Jimmy <laughs> Carter in 1976 uh-huh. was the last time that Texas went blue, so to speak, uh, beating uh, Gerald Ford at the time. Uh, so I, I will note that the poll was uh, conducted before the growing news coverage of the allegation of sexual assault against Joe Biden. Uh, from back in 1993 by one of his former Senate staffers uh, and before Biden addressed the allegations a little bit on Friday, saying it never happened. In any event, it is barely May, and I always caution not to take too much from any particular polling, whether it's May or October or November. But opening up Texas as a battleground this year would be huge news. So I want to sort of put that on your radar to once again underscore how this year especially every vote everywhere is going to matter. Take nothing for granted, even the idea that a Democrat could never win in Texas. Just put that out of your mind. Um In any event, with the uh, pandemic in place, Biden has uh, slightly pulled ahead of Trump in Texas with this poll, which uh, in a state that has been uh, under firm GOP control for more than two decades. Uh, But here's what seems to have made the difference. He leads Donald Trump 43 to 28 with independent voters which uh, Biden hopes will carry him to victory. Both candidates enjoy strong support from inside their parties. So uh, what the independents do could make all the difference. Uh, More election news and specifically election integrity news and specifically election integrity news in California and specifically in Los Angeles coming up in a little bit today, along with a guest who has been doing some digging on the brand new, completely failed $300 million L.A. County touchscreen voting system boondoggle that I long warned you about repeatedly on this show. Uh, before that system crashed and burned on Super Tuesday in early March, which seems a million years ago, but we'll have some more news on that. Uh, But, of course, in other warnings that I've also been uh, giving you on this program, damn near day in and day out for weeks now, uh, about the Trump administration and most of these Republican governors and their happy talk about the coronavirus, how they claim with no actual evidence that it's on a downswing and that it's become uh, time to fling open the doors to businesses and such, even long before virtually any actual scientists or, you know, health experts agree, at least not without major testing and contact tracing regimes in place, which we do decidedly do not have anywhere. 
Uh, well, because the Trump administration has absolutely dithered on all of that while lying to the public to the contrary about all of that. Well, uh, they can offer all the happy talk they want. But as I've noted for several months since the crisis began, it does not matter what they say. The numbers and the science will not allow Donald Trump to lie his way out of reality, not this time, not with this virus, which even his own government seems to know, according to their own secret projections, that counter the Donald Trump happy talk. According to The New York Times, as uh, this is today, as uh, Donald Trump presses for states to reopen their economies, his administration is privately projecting a steady rise in the number of cases and deaths from the coronavirus over the next several weeks, reaching about 3,000 deaths daily um, on June 1. That, according to an internal document obtained and reported today by The Times, that is nearly double the current level of deaths, which is around uh, 1,750 per day on average. The projections, based on government modeling pulled together in chart form by FEMA, forecast about 200,000 new cases each day by the end of this month. That's 200,000 new cases a day. That is radically up from the current rate of about 25,000 new cases each day right now. The numbers underscore a sobering reality, the Times observes, noting that, again, we've been uh, telling you uh, day after day after day on this program, while the U.S. has been hunkered down for the past seven weeks, not much has changed. And the reopening to the economy will make matters worse, not better. That coming from the New York Times, not just the broadcast anymore. I I take no joy in in reiterating any of this, but someone's got to amid all of the stuff and nonsense that the administration has been telling you and the mainstream media keeps repeating for them, despite any lack of evidence to support it. So uh, the FEMA chart in this document is based on data and models that were created by the CDC, according to the Times. The CDC warns in the document that there remains a large number of counties whose burden continues to grow. The projections confirm the primary fear of public health experts that a reopening of the economy will put the nation right back where it was in mid-March. When cases were rising so rapidly in some parts of the country, the patients were dying on gurneys in hospital hallways as the health care system was overloaded. This report also suggests that infection rates will increase more in rural America over the coming months. The document names the Great Lakes region, parts of south uh, of the southeast, northeast, and around, yes, southern California as potential new hotspots, while Louisiana and New York City remain on the downward trajectory in the federal government's modeling, although I don't think Louisiana is going to stay on that downward trajectory too long now that uh, its Republican legislature, legislature has uh, forced voters to use touchscreen voting machines across the entire state for the, or their uh, upcoming primary instead of sending absentee ballots to voters. Scott Gottlieb, who is Donald Trump's own former commissioner on the FDA, said uh, Sunday on uh, Face the Nation, we expected that we would start seeing more significant declines in new cases and deaths around the nation at this point, and we are just not seeing that. 
On Sunday, Trump said deaths in the U.S. could reach 100,000. That is twice as many as he had forecast just two weeks ago. But his new estimate still underestimates what his own administration is now predicting to be the total deaths by uh, by the end of May, much less in the months that follow it. Separately, the report provides new information from the federal government on COVID-19 death rates in the U.S. Around 16 percent of those who are hospitalized during the period beginning on March 1 died of COVID-19. According to the uh, discharge data, 16 percent of those hospitalized ended up dead. Those grim and sobering statistics come as the Trump administration is still pushing to reopen the country, moving to bring federal employees back to work, using his bully pulpit to have local administrators and, and end lockdown policies. Several states around the country, most of which are governed by Republicans, have now done so. And yes, people are going to die because of it. Some of those states that have partially reopened are still seeing an increase in cases, including Iowa, Minnesota, Tennessee, and yes, Texas. According to the data, Indiana, Kansas, and Nebraska are also seeing an increase in cases and yet have reopened some businesses on Monday. Alaska is also reopening uh, and is seeing a small number of uh, increasing cases there. The country, in a general sense, has stabilized, but it has not improved, according to data collected by The Times. Case and death numbers remain stuck on what they describe as a numbing, tragic plateau. At least 1,000 people with the virus, and sometimes more than 2,000, have died every single day for the last month. On a near daily basis, at least 25,000 new cases of the virus are being identified across the country. And even as New York City, New Orleans, and Detroit have shown some improvement, other urban centers, including Chicago and Los Angeles, are reportedly uh, reporting a steady growth in cases. I'm sorry to hear that here in Los Angeles, but I have noticed over the past week or so there are more people out. There's more traffic on the street. So I got to say I'm not entirely surprised that it's also creeping up here in Los Angeles. The situation has devolved most dramatically in parts of rural America, however, that were largely spared in the early stages of the pandemic, according to the Times. But much as we uh, were able to look around the world back in, uh, in, in March, February, March, we were able to look at countries like China and Italy to get some sense of what the U.S. would be in for. Uh, a few weeks later, during the early part of the crisis uh, on our side, well, we can now look to some of those nations to get a sense of what will soon be happening here after opening up states for business around this country prematurely, as Republicans are clearly now dead set on doing with the emphasis on dead, I'm sorry to say. According to AP Today, while millions of people took advantage of easing coronavirus lockdowns to enjoy the outdoors, some of the world's most populous countries reported worrisome new peaks in infections on Sunday, including India, which saw, which, uh, saw its biggest single-day jump yet. India reported more than 2,600 new infections. In Russia, new cases exceeded 10,000 for the first time. 
The confirmed total death toll in Britain climbed near that of Italy, which was the epicenter of Europe's outbreak, even though the U.K. population is younger than Italy's and Britain had more time to prepare for it. At the same time, with nowhere near the population of India, which uh, reported uh, 2,000 new infections, 2,600 new infections, the U.S. continues to see tens of thousands of new infections each day, and health experts have warned of a potential second wave of infections unless testing is expanded dramatically once these lockdowns are relaxed. But pressure to reopen keeps building after the weeks-long shutdown of businesses has plunged the global economy into its deepest slump since the 1930s and has wiped out millions of jobs. Uh, Donald Trump, speaking at a virtual town hall on Fox News on Sunday night, said we have to we have to get it back open safely, but as quickly as possible. That uh, town hall was staged at the base of the uh, Lincoln statue at the Lincoln Memorial, where, yes, Trump actually did whine that uh, they always said nobody got treated worse than Clinton. I'm sorry. Nobody got treated worse than Lincoln. I believe I am treated worse. He thinks he was uh, treated worse than Abe Lincoln, who uh, I guess Donald Trump may not recall was actually shot in the head and killed by one of his critics. I know it's it's uh, I'm sorry, I just have to stop because it was so mind blowing. My head just about exploded there because I could not imagine he is sitting at the not a good turn of phrase to use, by the way. Sorry. You want to try again, Des? (laughs) I just terrible, Uh terrible rhetoric. Yes. Yes. He's sitting at the at the feet of the statue of Lincoln to say he was treated worse than Lincoln. Yep. I mean, just unbelievable. But we digress. Yes. Uh, Speaking on uh, Fox News Sunday, White House coronavirus coordinator Deborah Birx expressed concern about protests by armed and mostly maskless crowds demanding an end to stay at home orders and a full boot of the economy. Trump has encouraged people to, quote, liberate their states. Uh, She said it's devastatingly worrisome to me personally, because if they go home and infect their grandmother or their grandfather, they will feel guilty for the rest of their lives if those people uh, have the ability to feel guilt. She said, so we need to protect each other at the same time. We are uh, voicing our discontent. But of course, um, as Desi Doyen has been reporting on our Green News report in recent weeks, the oil industry... And it's bought and paid supporters in state governments uh, around the country have been uh, hiding behind the crisis to pass laws while all of this is going on to make it illegal to protest uh, oil and natural gas pipelines. Yeah, isn't that neat that they've used the cover of the coronavirus to pass these laws to prevent people from protesting against infrastructure that's going to cause the climate crisis? Right. So that, you know, which has been noticed by very few people because, you know, coronavirus has taken up all the oxygen, so to speak. Uh, They're passing these laws uh, and, uh, you know, these are obviously blatantly unconstitutional restrictions on the First Amendment free speech rights when it comes to those sorts of of protests. But my favorite tweet over the weekend on this, after uh, protesters armed with high-powered semi-automatic rifles made their way into the Michigan Statehouse, into the Michigan Michigan Capitol building late last week, Uh, was a tweet from psychiatrist Brian Harnsberger. 
who tweeted, uh, quote, so let me get this straight. If I go to a protest, if I go to protest a North Dakota pipeline on tribal land, I'll get gassed, pelted with rubber bullets and arrested. But if I storm the Michigan State House with a long gun and armor and yell in the face of law enforcement, I'll get to go home without consequence. Yep, doctor, welcome to America. But you see, I have digressed again. <laughs> yes, you have. And I'll just note that yeah. only if you're a white male storming ah, the Michigan well. State House with yeah. a gun will you be able to get Who away would with know? it, Scott. Who Frank. would know? You got masks on now. Yeah, Remember, right. they didn't even used to let people wear masks anywhere. Uh, you know, and now you, they're wearing them everywhere. And they're coming in with guns. And they're hanging around a whole bunch of lawmakers. What could possibly go wrong? Anyway, uh, see, stop making me digress, Desi Doyen. Uh, Tom Inglesby, the director of the Center for Health Security of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health on NBC's Meet the Press, said nothing has changed in the underlying uh, dynamics of this virus. And yet we are flinging the doors open. Governments have reported three and a half million infections and more than 247,000 deaths across the globe, including more than 67,000 dead in the U.S. Uh, that's uh, the official count, or at least the confirmed account at Johns Hopkins University. That after Trump was telling us just a week or two ago that it would get as high as 50 or 60,000 by the end of summer. Well, we're already uh, almost 70,000. Nailed it again, Mr. Trump. Uh, But while nothing has changed in the underlying dynamics of this virus, which cannot simply be wished away or trumped away, one of the the main U.S. uh, data sites that many in the media and the government have been relying on for their predictions, one that we have constantly told you every time we mention it, we tell you that it is uh, far too conservative, one of the most conservative uh, numbers out there, which is the Washington University's um, University of Washington's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, or IHME. They said in a press release just over an hour or so ago that they now plan to radically revise their own previous projections to nearly 135,000 COVID-19 deaths expected in the U.S., an increase that one of its researchers tied to relaxed social distancing and increased mobility. That new number of predicted deaths in the U.S. by midsummer nearly doubles the 72,000 deaths that had uh, previously been predicted as of Monday morning. Uh, The uh, head of the IHME said we are seeing, of course, a rise in projected deaths for several reasons. He said one of them is increased mobility before the premature relaxation of social distancing. He said multiple variables impact infections like heat, testing capacity, population density. But the most important one, he says, is mobility. And right now, he said, we are seeing an increase in mobility that's leading to an increase in mortality, unfortunately, in the U.S. Meanwhile, the divide in the U.S. Senate between those who want to lock down uh, everybody, well, not everybody, but who want the lockdowns uh, to continue and those who want the lockdowns to end, 
That is extending to Congress. The Republican-majority Senate reopened Monday in Washington, while the Democratic-controlled House of Representatives is staying shuttered for the time being. But at least some Republican governors, well, one anyway, one who was planning on reopening, is now having second thoughts. And I think that's good. Mississippi's Republican governor, Tate Reeves, uh, is reconsidering his plan to keep reversing his stay-at-home order after his state saw its largest spike in COVID-19 cases in just one day following his first partial rollback. Things can change quickly, the GOP governor said during a press briefing on Friday. We have to stay, uh, stay flexible. Well, good for him. Mississippi State Health Officer uh, Dr. Thomas Dobbs was also present at the briefing. He reported that there were 397 new cases in Mississippi and that that was the largest number of cases we've reported in a single day. That after beginning to relax the stay-at-home orders. Governor Tate, who has issued an executive order that allowed some businesses to reopen effective April 24 told reporters that he had originally planned to to announce even more reopenings during the Friday press conference, but then he changed his mind upon hearing the sudden surge in cases. He said, uh, the increase was a large enough change to make me take a step back, re-examine things, and reconsider, at least over the weekend, not to recklessly put people in harm's way. Mississippi's Department of Health reported that as of Friday, there are 7,400 cases of the virus in Mississippi, 291 deaths. So, yes, good for him. Good for Governor Reeves. Yes, he's an idiot. Yes, that took way too long uh, to protect his people in the first place with the lockdowns. And yes, he's an idiot for opening things back up for no good reason just a few weeks later, other than because Republicans are worried about their chances at the ballot box this year. But at this point, uh, the bar is so low, so low for Republicans like uh, Governor Reeves that I have to say, you know what? Hey, that a boy. Good job. Good job, Governor. When they do something so blindingly, obviously correct, even for a moment, uh, you know, if 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 the otherwise obvious reasonable course of action is is finally taken, because at least it will result in saving more lives. So, you know what? It seems so obvious that he would do this. But the fact that normally these guys don't, I got to say, hey, way to go. You're saving lives. Thank you. The bar is so lowered now. Yep. Anyway, in any event, uh, we haven't forgotten about the ballot box this year either, by the way, and neither, I hope, have you. Uh, I got a few items along those lines, including, yes, finally, certified results from California. Yes, breaking news on who won in California on Super Tuesday two months ago, and some more news on the disastrous Super Tuesday rollout of L.A. County's $300 million unverifiable touchscreen voting systems that failed that day, which seems a million years ago, uh, and which, by the way, if uh, still used in any future elections, those touchscreen systems will now be an unacceptable disease vector for the uh, further spread of coronavirus. All of that 
and a guest who will join me for uh, some of that news and maybe a few of your calls if we have time. We'll see. 818-985-5735 is our phone number. If time allows, you can line up now. Always happy to talk to you when we can as we roll through, what is it, week six or so? Week seven? I don't know. Lost all track of time of the coronavirus shutdown in these United States. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. Hi, this is Brad. My thanks to those who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to sign up for a subscription to the Bradcast of any amount you like. We rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please grab a subscription at bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com, live from California with, well, just enough soul, I guess, to get us through. Uh, It has only been two months, two months since California's March 3 Super Tuesday presidential primary, but guess what? We finally have got certified results. Now, we take a long time to count our ballots out here in the Golden State because we want to count them correctly. Uh, when we can, not quickly. And we've got a lot of absentee vote-by-mail voters here. we got a lot of voters, period, but a lot of uh, absentee voters, which takes time to authenticate and count, etc. Usually, the state certifies 30 days after the election, but certification was necessarily delayed by the coronavirus crisis. So uh, results were finally certified just this past Friday by California Secretary of State Alex Padilla. His press release uh, issued late on Friday notes that nearly 10 million Californians voted in the March 3rd contest. That is the most ever in a primary election. That was only, however, 38 and a half percent of the eligible voting age pop, uh, population in the state. But still, it was the second highest overall primary turnout by percentage of eligible voters in the past 38 years. So a good turnout, but not nearly as many who could be turning out for our elections. Voter turnout in 13 of the 15 so-called Voters' Choice Act counties exceeded the statewide turnout. Now, those Voters' Choice Act counties are those that choose to send vote-by-mail ballots to all voters and then use voting centers where anybody can vote in person rather than uh, uh, community precincts. Um, in, uh, so th- the uh, turnout rate in those counties uh, exceeded the statewide average. In the other two counties that didn't, that would be Fresno and Los Angeles, uh, which had a special carve-out in the law, it did not have to send vote-by-mail ballots to all registered voters, but it was allowed to get rid of our 5,000 or so community precincts and uh, go down to a voting center model where anyone can vote at any of the about 1,000 voting centers. Um, That was uh, in, in those two counties, Fresno and L.A., turnout of the eligible voting age population was greater than the turnout of the eligible voting age population, at least in the 2016 presidential primary election. 
But of course, that might be because this one came this year much, much earlier than the one in 2016. In any event, here are the results. I know you've been waiting on pins and needles to find out who won California. Do you know, Desi Doyen, who won California? Do you I have any idea? Too to much? Again. All right. Bernie Sanders won California bigly. He defeated Joe Biden by eight points, 36 percent to 28 percent. He was followed by Elizabeth Warren at just over 13 percent and Mike Bloomberg uh, with 12 percent. In Los Angeles County specifically, which is the nation's largest voting jurisdiction with some five and a half million voters, Sanders did even better. He defeated Biden here by 11 points. So, no, despite what you may have heard from some folks in the run up to that election, no, California was not stealing the election from Bernie. Bernie Sanders won bigly. There is no evidence uh, that uh, the, the election was stolen from, well, obviously not stolen in 2020. Uh, neither is there compelling evidence that it was stolen from Bernie in 2016 when Bernie lost to Hillary Clinton. Despite what you have heard you over and over again in the past four years, nope, I check the evidence, I read it, I look at it closely. Um, Bernie Sanders lost in 2016 in California, and he decisively won in 2020. Now, on Friday's program, at the end of my interview with Iowa's Democratic 4th Congressional, Congressional District uh, candidate J.D. Shelton, uh, on the crisis in meatpacking plants around the country, and especially in Iowa's rural farm country with workers being infected by the thousands in big ags, consolidated monopoly packing plants. Well, you can download that interview for free at bradblog.com. Thanks to those who support our work at bradblog.com slash donate. But at the end of that interview, Shulton, who is running against Republican white nationalist Congressman Steve King in Iowa this year, he explained that the state would uh, Iowa would be sending absentee ballot applications to all registered voters for their upcoming June 2 primary. Well, that is good news for voters in the Hawkeye state who do not wish to risk their lives to go to the polls amid a pandemic in order to vote, to exercise their right. But we had less good news last week for voters in Louisiana, where the GOP state legis legislature there severely restricted allowable reasons for voters to apply for an absentee ballot this year with fear of catching and dying from coronavirus. Not acceptable. That's not a good excuse to request an absentee ballot in the state of Louisiana, where it is especially dangerous because the entire state is forced to vote at the polls on unverifiable touchscreen voting systems, which are now dangerous vectors for the coronavirus disease. And it was even more obnoxious, by the way, because the GOP-controlled state legislature who voted against a bipartisan agreement that would have allowed almost everyone in Louisiana to vote by mail... That decision was made by the GOP majority state legislature uh, to block access to most vote by mail in the state. How did they do it? They used a mail-in vote themselves to pass this measure. 
Uh, Anyway, we had some better news in two Pennsylvania counties last week that decided uh, last week to dump their dangerous touchscreen voting systems for much safer hand-marked paper ballots at the polling place, though with uh, Pennsylvania late last year thankfully adopting a measure to allow a no-excuse absentee voting uh, system for the first time, hopefully most voters in the crucial battleground state will vote by mail in their June 2 primary coming up and hopefully this November as well. We have been seeing a spate of election-related lawsuits that we've been covering on the broadcast day after day in recent weeks as states figure out how the hell to hold votes during a pandemic. And over the weekend, a new one, Kristen Clark, president of the National Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, announced that they had just sued Tennessee to ensure that voters will have access to the ballot in the wake of the pandemic. She said the state has, be- uh, has some of the most restrictive restrictive absentee voting rules in the nation. No voter, she said, should be locked out during the COVID-19 pandemic. So that may be some good news for Tennessee voters, but perhaps the best news, at least for those of us in California uh, and in the largest voting jurisdiction in the nation, here in my home county of Los Angeles, the nation's largest voting jurisdiction, uh, where you recall, though it seems... A very long time ago, my detailed reporting on the county's $300 million boondoggle purchase of 100% unverifiable touchscreen ballot marking devices, which I had literally been warning about, warning against, for about 10 years while these systems were in development. Very few people wanted to hear about it. I was really the only one making noise about it for many, many years. And then, of course, the first time we used this new touchscreen and electronic poll book system, uh, it just crashed and burned in the county's March 3rd Super Tuesday primary. The electronic poll books failed. The touchscreen ballot marking devices failed, all leading to long, long, long lines for the first time in L.A. County, uh, in L.A. County at the polling sites, especially during a primary where it's usually you're in and out zip, zip in two seconds. All of which was completely predictable, at least I predicted it, and you might have too, had you read the Brad blog or listened to the Bradcast since we have been warned about exactly that and broke the story on this program that the systems themselves had failed certification testing with some 40 different violations of California voting system standards back in December, right before California Secretary of State Alex Padilla certified those systems for use anyway in January for the March 3rd primary. Then, of course, the coronavirus struck, and we haven't been able to cover the disastrous fallout for this system, which was the brainchild of L.A. County Registrar Recorder Dean Logan, who will no longer come on this program or even answer my questions as he did for years because, I guess, well, I tried to warn him and the county about what was to come. But we've got some good news today that I was uh, was not able to get to late last week. I first heard about from L.A. Um, LA U.S. Congressman Adam Schiff who retweeted, great move by L.A. County to mail an absentee ballot to every registered voter in November, enabling safe and secure vote by mail during a pandemic is not just common sense, he writes. It's a health imperative. 
and vital vital to our democracy, other counties and states should follow L.A.'s lead. Yes, in fact, the L.A. County Board of Supervisors voted unanimously last week to send vote-by-mail ballots to every registered voter for the November general election here in L.A. County, citing concerns about uh, coronavirus-related social distancing. Uh, that is good news. Uh, that uh, tweet was brought to my attention by uh, Brad Blog, uh, a Twitter follower um, on 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 Twitter. I am the Brad Blog, and Melanie Fick one follows me. She writes, "Oh, the irony! After they recently spent three hundred million dollars of taxpayer dollars." on hackable electronic voting machines that were used for the first and last, question mark, time in the recent primary election. Ouch. But I do agree. Great move. As attorney Doug X and L.A. activist Catherine McNenny reported last week at Medium.com, L.A. County switched this year from hand-marked paper ballots to electronic voting machines at the polling place. With a much-vaunted $300 million program, $300 million, they note, could have been uh, could have put every homeless person, approximately 50,000 people in L.A. County, into a $100-a-night hotel room for 50 nights. So what did the county get for this high price tag switch, they ask? If you guessed not much, you were right. If you guessed a complete and utter debacle... At the debut of these machines, you would be right on the money. The pair had filed a public records request for records of reports from poll workers directly uh, 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 from the poll workers who were directly dealing with uh, trying to help masses of people vote with uncooperative machines, insufficient training for the problems they faced, huge understaffed tech support and hordes of frustrated, happy, unhappy voters in March. X and McNenny uh, filed their requests, and last week they reported on what they got back, and it was not pretty. But it tends to reinforce her own reporting and interviews with several poll workers after the uh, March 3rd Super Tuesday debacle in L.A. Joining us now for just some of those fines uh, is Doug X. He's an attorney with his own criminal defense practice. He has been doing pro bono work with the Public Law Center and other organizations since 2011. And he is also a member of the National Lawyers Guild of Los Angeles, where he trained with the Guild on California Public Records Act requests before submitting his own request after the California primary regarding the VSAP system or the Voting Solutions for All People system that failed so miserably on March 3rd. Uh, Doug X, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Hi, thank you. I really appreciate you joining us here today, Doug. I want to first thank you and Catherine uh, for taking this action. Many of us in the media were slammed, of course, after Super Tuesday as uh, coronavirus took off. And other than me, for the most part, the media in L.A. had been, uh, you know, not particularly good in covering this debacle anyway, either before or after the election. So uh, I'm glad that you guys were on this, are on this. Thank you very much for that. You're welcome. I mean, um, they, t- they reported about the long lines, but they didn't know much of the causes. And we mm-hmm. want to know about what happened in the details. Yeah, exactly. So uh, first, what information did you request from L.A. County Registrar Recorder County Clerk Dean Logan's office? Uh, and what information did they end up actually sending you, Doug? Well, we heard there was some talk that there was going to be non-disclosure agreements with the poll workers. They couldn't talk to the press. Yep. So me and Captain brainstormed, and we thought, well, there's probably internal 
ways of making complaints, and we should be able to access that with the Public Records Act. Mm -hmm. And then we also asked for a summary, kind of how many machines went wrong and where they went wrong, and then asking if they had contingency plans and, and why those didn't work. Mm -hmm. Now, they didn't turn over the contingency plans, and they didn't turn over a summary of all the machines that didn't work, mm -hmm. but they did turn over about 50 pages of internal emails from poll workers and their experience and problems. And, uh, by the way, I can confirm that poll workers were, in fact, instructed not to talk to the media. I don't know if they had um, non-disclosure agreements, but they were definitely told that. One of them told me that specifically. Dean Logan came out and uh, disputed my report on, uh, on Twitter after I reported it, and then, of course, the Washington Post came out and confirmed it. So, uh, yeah, you had it right, and that means we, you, me, the public, need to get at this information another way. I'm going to link, of course, to your story at Medium.com when we uh, post today's show at, at Bradblog.com later tonight. But in general, uh, what did you find in the responses that you did get back, and what stood out to you the most? Well, so understand, these are people who really believe in the voting system. They would say things like, we think this is a great system, and we had a good experience with the public. At the same time, saying 11 out of 30 machines didn't work, voters were very angry, and that, you know, mm -hmm. there was three-hour lines. Mm -hmm. The poll books wouldn't sink, mm -hmm. and they had to do everything by hand, or had to do a, a great deal of it by hand anyway. So when you say that uh, these are people who, who are uh, believers, you're saying these, are, these were mostly poll workers, uh, that were uh, notes from poll workers, and I had uh, some on the show as well who who did kind of want to make the best of it, you know, saying, well, it was imperfect, but it solved some problems, but it caused other ones. Uh, was that sort of what you saw in the tone and tenor from these people, even as they were reporting, as you note, uh, one voting center had 31 machines where 11 of them did not work? That's correct, and that's what I'm trying to say, is that some of them were saying that this is a really bad problem, but most of them were trying to put a positive spin on it at the same time saying the vast problem that they had and nothing worked right. Mm. Is, is uh, your request, they were, when nothing was working right, it wasn't just the touchscreen voting systems. It was also the electronic poll books that were failing in uh, a, a voting center after voting center, correct? Right, and I have problems with the e-poll books because they connect to the Internet, but mm -hmm. I didn't really focus on that in this article. It was just the fact they didn't work. Yep. That, and they were, they were sort of um, the limiting factor or the rate-determining step, to use a chemistry term, that there's a report where the voting, they, they got like eight extra voting machines, but it didn't help at one point because they still had only two e-poll books, <laughs> and those spent 90% of the time syncing up and couldn't be used. And those are uh, those were a problem not just in Los Angeles, I should note, but in a bunch of counties around the states and around the country in other states where the you know they were relying on these electronic poll books to have to connect to the internet in order to check people in to vote. The uh, internet, of course, as you may have heard, is hackable. And uh, when there are any problems with the e poll books, when there are only you know one or two at each site. Uh, that means the lines go out the door and you end up, in this case, in L.A. And were you able to tell, Doug, uh, were there free and available voting uh, machines, these touchscreen uh, uh, VSAP systems, but that people were not able to get to them because they were blocked by uh, problems with the uh, e-poll books? Well, there was miscommunications. Like, no one knew which poll book, which if they didn't have a grid or communication system that said, hey, these people have, a, have no lines, mm -hmm. and this place has three hours. So there's, there was one poll center that never got the equipment, 
and was closed for an entire day, and they contacted L.A. County saying, can you send us some place where we can be more helpful? And they never did. They spent eight hours on one day just turning people away. But there's a constant thread through all the poll workers saying that they didn't know which places to refer people to that might have less lines because they didn't have that information. Well, you know, with uh, vote-by-mail ballots, and by the way, I'm not a fan of vote-by-mail, but in the middle of a pandemic, I'm kind of a fan of vote-by-mail. And uh, in the middle of a, of a county that otherwise forces you to touch uh, to, to vote on uh, touchscreen systems, which even not during a pandemic are dangerous and completely unverifiable, uh, my hope is that there will be uh, less of this uh, touchscreen voting systems with everybody receiving a vote-by-mail ballot. But were you able to tell because Dean Logan will no longer answer my questions. Are you able to tell whether they plan to use this system uh, in the same way this November for the general election, Doug? Uh, no. All we got was the poll workers' account. Mm-hmm. And obviously, the poll workers don't know what's going to happen in November. But I want to disagree with you about the vote by mail because what I love about it is the last time that Republicans got caught cheating was <laughs> with vote by mail ballots. Yeah. So. Uh, I do think that I think that's the problem with it. They're okay with internet voting, they say insecurities, mm-hmm. but they're not okay with putting my mallets. And I think that the reason they're not okay with it is that's the way they get caught. Well, uh, one of the reasons I'm not okay with it is because I do know how easy it is to cheat when it comes to vote by mail. And I don't agree with uh, Donald Trump in in anything and not even on this uh, matter either. Um, but it is much more difficult to oversee our elections when they are vote by mail. And I know that uh, my uh, email address, by the way, is bradcast at bradblog.com. I'm putting that out there so the folks from Oregon and Washington can start writing me. Um, but I have, because they love it there, I appreciate that, but there are problems and there are concerns, but right now we don't have a choice. You can't send, uh, people to die at the polling place as I see it. Uh, Doug, is your request, uh, that they didn't respond for how many poll books failed and how many electronic voting machines failed, uh, that you say they didn't answer that? Is that a still standing request that you hope to get numbers from them on still? Yes, I'm hoping to um, find another attorney to do a writ on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could do one myself, but I always follow the adage that if you represent yourself as an attorney, you got a fool for a client. <laughs> yes. So, um, okay. I'd rather have, and um, but yes, if no one else is available because they're all, well, the National Lawyer Field is pretty swamped with the COVID, mm-hmm. um, I probably will pursue a writ myself both for that and for the contingency plans because they denied those saying that that could hurt the public interest since if people knew their contingency plans, they could exploit them. And my view is that if your contingency plans worked, they'd have been used. Mm-hmm. So there's no, there's no problem letting people know what didn't work. Yeah. I'm hoping you got brand new contingency plans yeah. that might work next time. Yeah, more security um, so by obscurity. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, exactly. Uh, I, now, I, the, one of the reasons that I, uh, when I when I saw your report that I wanted to bring you on to talk about it, Doug, was it, this is something that any L.A. resident can do. Actually, you don't even need to be an L.A. resident, but uh, any resident, certainly here in California uh, and often in other states around the country, can make these public records requests. You don't have to be an attorney or a member of the media to try and oversee our public elections, Correct. Yes, California actually does have some good transparency laws. Many states do. And the California Public Records Act allows anyone to make a request of any document that 
is basically a government document available to the public. Now, obviously, something like these internal poll emails came with the names redacted of the individual emails, mm-hmm. but the information was still made available. Mm-hmm. And and if the and if the government does not respond, you can have an attorney and Content National Lawyers Guild, and we can, there's people there's people available to do writs mm-hmm. to enforce these because it's while there is a great law, the many agencies do not like being transparent and do not like to provide these documents. And sometimes you need a lawyer to file a document to mm-hmm. make them do the right thing. Yep. And th- that's where it gets tricky. Anybody can make the oversight request, the uh, public records request. Uh, but when they don't follow it and, you know, something as simple as how many e-poll books failed, that's a simple number. That should not be that difficult to report. Uh, but I always say that, uh, you know, elections are about public oversight. And this is the sort of thing that I'm talking about, this kind of public oversight. So, uh, Doug, thank you uh, to both you and Catherine for this work. Uh, before I let you go, what's your what's your takeaway uh, from perusing these records? Should uh, I'll, I'll link to it and people can now peruse them themselves because I think you've made those available to the public. Um should L.A. County be returning to hand-marked paper ballots, or are these uh, are these just glitches and hiccups and snags and snafus, as the media tends to describe them, uh, versus failures, as I tend to describe them when voting system problems mean people lose their right to vote? Well, let's put it this way. If you bought 30 gallons of milk and 11 were spoiled, would you go back to that store? <laughs> Well, I and wish each of, each of yeah. The, yeah each of the machines cost a lot more than a gallon of milk. Yeah. So one polling center had eleven machines not work, and that wasn't even the main problem. The problem was the poll books didn't work, and they only had two or three of those. Yep. So I have a bias. I believe in hammer paper ballots because I think it's the only security. Mm-hmm. But as they put in the article, and and there is a link to the entire do, you know, um, public records mm-hmm. document response. So people can check these for themselves. We, we are transparent. Mm-hmm. We want everyone to, to see the data that we, sh- we, we um, received. Yep. But that to give this little summary, because not everyone can read 100 pages of data, is that they, it didn't work. And it's not a hiccup when you have 11 machines out of 31 not work, yep. or when the poll books spend 90% of the time syncing up and they can't be used. The only value that the electric motor machines have is speed and convenience. We all know that they're less secure than handmark paper ballots. But if you're trading your security and not getting convenience and not getting speed, right. then I have to ask, why are you trading security? Yep. And that's what I've been asking for a long time. I'm so glad uh, uh, that you and Catherine are uh, have been doing the same. I hope you'll keep raising hell. I hope you'll keep pressing Dean Logan. I will, as I said, I will link to your article. It's at medium.com, uh, headline, $300 million debacle, the Los Angeles electronic voting debut. Yeah, it would be nice to get some of that money back, too, from some of those companies. Uh, Doug X, you can find him. Uh, his story is at medium.com. You can find his uh, personal website, uh, I think at xfactorlaw.com, but X is spelled E C K S, xfactorlaw.com. Uh, Doug X, uh, thank you for doing this. And um, uh, Catherine McNenny, uh, thank her as well for us, if you don't mind. I will. Thanks for having me on and thanks for, for pursuing this. You bet. Stay in touch. We'd love to hear more from you down the road, Doug. All right, got to take a quick break. We'll come back. Uh, we'll see if we have any time for any calls. My fault, not Doug's. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast.
What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. <sighs> Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Running late as usual. Yes, Brad, we are. Sorry. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, let's try to get in uh, very quick. Uh, just a call or two. Uh, make it quick, guys, if you can. Lynette in Los Angeles. Oh, wait a minute. Let me. That's the wrong one. Let me go to Lynette in Los Angeles. Oh, did I hang up on Roger? I need to learn how Hi, to Brad. operate a phone. Roger calls back. Lynette, hey, Hi, welcome Brad. to the Bradcast. Hey. <laughs> Thanks for taking my call. Excellent show, I guess. And, uh, well, we don't have to get behind Senator Kamala Harris because, as we know, the contractors on America is on, and we got to do what we need to do, especially if you're a minority. The contractor in America, that new Congress is on big time, and we need to be suing the government. But Senator Kamala Harris want to get the early, early voting and uh, after tea. This is crucial in these times. You support you support that, Lynette. And Lord help us, huh? You support the uh, uh, absentee ballots for everyone. And, and early voting, baby. Lord knows this is going to really help us to catch up with all this crap, this malfeasance, willful ignorance and malevolent government that we have. We need to be suing the government right now. Thank you. God bless. Thanks, Lynette. Appreciate the call. Uh, did we get Roger back? Yeah, Roger. We've been checking in with him each week from Minneapolis, Minnesota. See how things are going up there. Hey, Roger, how's it going in Minnesota? Starting week eight, um, you just played one of the most beautiful, uh, an excerpt of one of the most beautiful, bittersweet songs I uh, mm-hmm. have ever heard in my life across the universe. And that kind of bittersweet feeling is um, uh, the one in my heart as I explain to you or declare to you, we are witnessing mass insanity in this country. Yes, sir. Mass insanity. Yep. I, I, I rest my case. Uh, your case is well rested. Uh, thank you, Roger, and uh, I agree completely. And that's why I feel crazy. I'm left to feel crazy coming on the air every day and saying these things over and over again and trying to explain the science and what's actually going on versus what we hear from the administration, what we hear from our crazy, uh, often news media who just parrots what they say. I'm the one who feels crazy, so thank you, Roger, for telling me that I'm not, that it is the rest of the world that is insane. We will be back with another insane edition of the Bradcast uh, tomorrow on uh, many of these same stations. I hope you will join me for it. I want to thank my producer, Desi Doyen, my board operator today, Kiana Williams, my guest, Doug X, and to all of you uh, for spending a portion of your day or night with us and, indeed, those who called in that I couldn't get to. My apologies. Uh, what else do I have? Oh, yeah, you can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, you'll find me at thebradblog. I will see you there. Until I see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.